Good morning and welcome to another episode in Ursa's podcast series where we get to explore topical economic issues here in South Africa. Today we are rejoined by Chris Lowell, the head of the research department at the Reserve Bank and member of the MPC. Hello and welcome to our podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us again. Good morning, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So we last did a podcast shortly after the NPR in April, which was at the beginning of lockdown and in the midst of the initial shock from the COVID pandemic. Six months later, we have more clarity on our economic environment, but also are existing amidst a high level of uncertainty. What would you say has been your biggest taking from the past six months? Um, well, uh, a lot's happened <laughs> over the past <laughs> six months, uh, to say the least. Um, I, I think, you know, I suppose what's um, particularly interesting for me has been how um, the lockdown has kind of eased over time and a lot of the, um, you know, kind of really dire forecasts that had been put out about the impact of the pandemic on the economy and how this would lead into a kind of series of negative shocks that kind of accumulate over time uh, into depression, how that hasn't materialized. Um, and I, I think that's really positive thing, obviously, but it also sort of shows the kind of, um, you know, kind of natural or organic response of people to uh, both figuring out how to deal with the pandemic, but also, um, you know, the way in which things like lockdowns work, right? So government mm -hmm. says that certain things that are prohibited from, do, from being able to do, that immediately um, ceases certain types of economic activity and transactions that in turn generates, um, you know, a turn down in the economy. But then as you unwind these lockdown effects, the economy almost immediately bounces back. People uh, are able to kind of come start doing those economic transactions. Again, you can see the short-term mobility data, small business data through Yoko. I mean, all of these things immediately started to react to, to the easing of lockdown. Uh, and all that's very positive. Um, it, it, and, and not unique to South Africa, we've seen this uh, in other parts of the world as well. But there is a kind of relationship clearly between the way in which people react to the lockdown and the way in which the economy bounces back. So in some parts of the world uh, where uh, rules around social distancing or wearing masks or other kinds of restrictions weren't very uh, carefully attended to or followed, um, they've had much uh, larger problems. So the virus has continued, um, it's caused greater kind levels of uncertainty, it's impeded businesses and people from getting back into economic activity. So, uh, and uh, that's very important. And uh, as it happens, it, it's a feature, um, a little bit of, of the IMF's work um, that's being released this week. So I, I encourage people to go look at that, where they look at exactly this issue um, about how you know, there isn't really a trade-off between the lockdown and the way in which you deal with the pandemic. Um, this is a negative shock. Um, the best you, governments and, and businesses and households can do is uh, be allowed to adapt to mm -hmm. it with sensible rules that get adjusted gradually over time to reflect better knowledge and understanding about what's going on. So that's, um, so that's been very good. It's also, of course, fed into 
our forecasts of the economy. Uh, and so the monetary policy review that we released last week um, talks about this in some detail about how uh, our forecasts adjusted from March to April through to September, um, how uh, longer term data uh, has been slow to be released. And so we've relied quite heavily on uh, two things. One is a kind of supply side view of the economy. So a little supply side model that we developed for our own purposes for forecasting. Uh, as, as well as uh, a lot more attention to high frequency activity indicators uh, to kind of gauge on a month to month basis, you know, where the economy is. And all of those things have fed into uh, a forecast for South Africa that has um, become deeply negative, but then shows a, a pretty good bounce back. Um, in the short term, and then some medium and longer term concerns we have about how kind of um, people, economic activity picks up, but then kind of the longer term constraints that have weighed on growth in South Africa uh, start to exert themselves again mm -hmm. over that short term uh, high frequency uh, economic activity. So we're quite concerned about those, obviously, uh, but there are some things happening in the public space that seem to be moving in the right kinds of directions on that. So this mm -hmm. renewable energy um, uh, RFPs that have gone out, uh, obviously issues around corruption um, have started to be moved on more aggressively in recent weeks, or at least in a public way, uh, and those will be good for reducing uncertainty. Uh, so, so there are some, some things happening out there that are getting at, um, you know, these longer term issues that have bedeviled the economy. Yeah, I think it's, it's very important that, you know, you, you touch on the ability to adapt. And I think that is definitely a South African strength where we're quite resilient. Um, <laughs> we seem to overcome in the strangest of circumstances. And um, I think it's, yeah, just testament to our, our characters. And when we looked at the beginning of lockdown, there was a lot of talk about the, you know, the concerns, like you said, and the panic, and we were expecting price hikes in supermarkets, and um, we were expecting some short-term inflationary pressure. And then during lockdown, we noticed the price of oil went down significantly. So there's been a, quite a lot of things happening. Where is inflation at now? And what would you say is the main contributing factor towards it at the moment? And with that, I know it's a lot of questions. I'm just thinking in terms of um, the inflation expectations going forward, because this is obviously, you know, you talk about the uncertainty and, you know, how it's, how we'd be working with it. And um, yeah, what can you say about our inflation now and where it's going? Yeah, no, uh, that's, that's, look, the inflation rate is obviously a very good kind of final indicator of things that are happening in the economy, uh, in the internal dynamics. Um, and inflation, um, you know, has has uh, essentially been more moderate than we had had expected it to. On the margin, we had roughly got the trajectory right, uh, but there are a couple of different, you know, things happening there. One is, as you say, oil prices have uh, pretty consistently come out lower than expected. So the hit to the global economy uh, through the pandemic has generated a kind of you know, quite a structurally lower oil price for some time. I mean, for the obvious reason that, you know, very large 
uh, slowdowns or, or cessations of economic activity mean that that oil demand has plummets, um, and that has generated this this kind of uh, weakening in demand, uh, and that weakening of demand has persisted uh, for some time, and and is expected to continue to persist for some time. So that's that's a positive. And um, on other parts of food, of uh, prices, there are kind of different kinds of things happening. So food prices uh, tend to be. Uh, you know, volatile uh, for South Africa and fairly problematic. They're, they are a combination of imported prices, the RAND exchange rate, and the domestic food market. And um, a couple of years ago, of course, there was this drought and that generated very high food prices. And mm -hmm. since then, we've seen food prices continue to come down. Now, you know, if you pick up any six-month period of time and analyze food prices, you get kind of a different story going on. What's <laughs> happened in the past year is that while global food prices have started to pick up quite strongly, in particular, particular for cereals, uh, which are a big component of food prices, um, we've had very good harvests in South Africa and good rains. And so uh, our food prices have been, have been quite low. Uh, oh, wow. Alongside that, we've had a big decline in meat prices uh, due to a variety of kind of events, but they've all conspired to uh, lower meat prices, which are again a very big component of the food basket in South Africa. So food prices, while they're, they're increasing, they are much more moderate and modest than we had expected them to be. And so that's playing a big role in keeping prices down generally. There are other things too. Uh, one of them is the housing and rental market, which has been uh, disinflating for some time. We probably have, have reached the bottom of that disinflation this year. Um, so essentially there's been a kind of relative price adjustment in the housing and rentals market that's been going on for about two years now. Um, and, and is also generating a, a really strong pull down in inflation. We've had, inflation expectations coming down. So people's forward-looking view of inflation has, has moderated. And what we know is that that tends to moderate inflation in the, in the present as well. Uh, we've seen nominal wage growth come down uh, quite a bit, uh, and that's also contributing to an overall disinflation of the economy. So we've basically seen the inflation rate come down from about five and a half percent a year to about three, 3.2, 3.3% now. Okay. Now we expect that to rise again. We, we think we're hitting the low of the inflation cycle. Uh, that, so we, we, our forecasts show that rising back up to about four and a half percent, but in a very gradual kind of way um, over the next year or two. The other component to all of this, which is very important from a policy point of view is that uh, exchange rate pass-through has been has been very modest. So even though the RAND has been quite volatile and there have been periods of extensive depreciation like this year, that has not generated a very strong kick-through into inflation. It's there, uh, but it's not as strong as it as it used to be. So five or ten years ago, we would have been really worried about the extent of that pass-through. Now 
uh, we're less worried about it. And that, that's very important because it creates a kind of longer, medium to longer term uh, level of confidence about uh, our policy settings and the inflation trajectory. Now, what could upset all of that, of course, is very large shocks to the inflation rate coming out of, say, the labor market or the exchange rate or food prices or any number of these things, oil prices. Mm. Uh, but we don't see that happening at the moment, uh, which is, is very positive. It, it implies that uh, there will not be very strong upward pressure on interest rates anytime soon. Uh, and that will help the economy get through this pandemic adjustment that, that we're going through and, and hopefully generate um, a stronger kind of rebound even beyond the short term into the medium and long term. Maybe the medium term is closer than we realize with our economy demonstrating more of a V-shaped than a U-shaped recovery. Bearing this in mind, how would you say human behavior has changed and which parts of this will be long lasting? Uh, yeah, well, that's a good question. I, so, I mean, I, I, think, I think what's interesting is that um, the pandemic came at a time of quite a lot of technological advance anyway, right? So we live in an age where, um, you know, uh, computer-based, ITC-related, software-related technological advancement is, is really, really rapid. And um, I mean, it's interesting, the, you know, so you get hit by the pandemic and, and no one can go to work, but you've got suddenly these fantastic uh, tools at your disposal, like Zoom and Teams <laughs> and everything that, that you can just kind of carry on. Now, obviously that's not true in a huge chunk of the economy. That's true in certain parts of the economy that uh, where, uh, you know, that depend much more on, on uh, ITC-based kind of work, right? So, um, you know, there is a big chunk of the economy that uh, is constrained by the pandemic and constrained directly by this inability to, you know, be in a factory or uh, work with each other closely in a mine or on a farm. So, so those kinds of um, sectors will continue, are continuing to be constrained. In terms of kind of human behavior, I mean, again, you know, I tend to think about this as being a function of, you know, problem solving. So how do businesses solve the problems around um, preventing or, you know, minimizing the risk of getting sick? Um, I have no doubt that um, as the pandemic eases and the risk of getting the virus continues to fall, you're going to see, see lots of people going back to what they used to do, right? I mean, we're yeah. not going to see wholesale changes in the fact that people like to go to restaurants or like to go to cafes or like to meet up with their friends. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if anything, we probably see an extended and, and very big spike in doing exactly that for quite a long time uh, when the risk really does materially fall. Um, yeah. I think, you know, there are sectors like schooling that might change quite a lot. You know, it's quite clear um, in some countries and also here that, you know, university life is going to change uh, quite substantially. Um, you know, online schooling of various kinds will be a bigger feature of everybody's lives. And, and there will be efficiencies associated with these things that, that, businesses uh, and households will not really want to give up on. Um, mm. So there will be changes, but I, I, th I think it's a bit early to, 
you know, call for uh, <laughs> you know, permanent radical changes in yeah. the way we go about doing things. One, one, one point I would make is that, you know, at a much higher policy level, um, the pandemic should have underscored for many people that um, in the longer term, there really isn't a kind of trade-off between going green and dealing with uh, environment-related problems that are going to generate health problems in the future. Uh, and, and so this kind of idea that it's an either-or, that there's a big economic cost associated with uh, the right kinds of uh, climate change and climate adaptation policies is, is no doubt wrong. Again, um, there are various institutions around the world, like the World Bank and the UN and the IMF and others that are doing a lot more work on this. And the pandemic has really served to highlight uh, this point that, you know, in a, in a world that's affected environmentally and that generates more and more diseases of this kind and other kinds of problems, uh, there will be huge economic costs associated with it. And so you've got to actually take the steps to, and have the right kinds of policies to, to change economic behavior to deal with that. And you can see it creeping into our own dialogue in terms of um, there's much more interest suddenly about allowing households to generate their own electricity, incentivizing that, you know, going for solar solutions and that kind of thing, which will be environmentally healthy uh, and, and also healthy for us as humans. It will improve the quality of our, of our, uh, our biological existence. Yeah. And when we look at the human behavior amongst these industries, we can also see that savings have increased in households. But I agree, if we can also have long-lasting change that is good for our environment, that should be a great positive. In our last podcast, we also spoke a lot about the importance of monetary policy and fiscal policy working together. And we can see how we've had the, you know, the stimulus from government, um, you know, which was really great. And we've also, the Reserve Bank has done several things. Um, we spoke about lowering interest rates. And then you also spoke about other mechanisms such as easing capital restrictions, as well as, um, you know, buying bonds in the secondary market as part of the balance sheet policies. I think the big question on people's minds right now is, is a second wave coming? Um, you know, we're not quite sure what's going to happen. If we were to have another lockdown, how much leeway do we still have based on our current monetary policy framework? Um, well, I, I think any second lockdown would be different from the first, right? Yeah. So the way, you know, we're better <laughs> prepared for it and we know be much better how to deal with these kinds of things. Um, but it's, it is true that it would still constitute a large negative economic shock and there will be businesses and households that, um, are uh, struggle to generate income and struggle to pay back loans and et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's a big, that's a really big problem. Um, so I think where we are now is that we still do have quite a lot of room to respond. I would also say that um, relative to March or April, the global economy is in quite a different space. So, um, you know, March and April, we were looking at the way in which global capital markets were, were viewing countries like South Africa and saying, oh, they're a big credit risk. 
and they probably are going to struggle to deal with the pandemic and they're going to have this huge economic hit and there's no policy space to respond to it. Uh, and so they're really in deep trouble. And that generated a kind of level of panic that um, made um, volatility indices and risk premium and interest rates spike uh, for in particular for long-term borrowing. Now, our monetary policy response has helped to deflate that volatility and that spike in long-term interest rates by pulling down on the tool that we have available, which is the short-term interest rate. And as you say, by releasing capital, regulatory capital into the banking system and by providing these, this guarantee scheme with government. Uh, and obviously by cutting interest rates, we are generating cash flow for businesses and households that hold debt. It also sends the signal um, that uh, you can borrow over the short term uh, at a cheap, much cheaper rate than before and continue to finance yourself. So, I mean, we'll have to kind of see, we definitely have more interest rate room to maneuver, uh, assuming that inflation remains well behaved. Um, government is about to approach the medium term budget policy statement in a few weeks time. Um, to give more detail on how their fiscal planning will work. Uh, and I think that will definitely give uh, some confidence to, to long-term investors, uh, both resident and non-resident, to continue funding uh, government. Um, you know, the Reserve Bank has used short-term bond purchases to ease kind of pricing dislocations in the bond markets. Uh, we will continue to do that as required to just maintain the level of private financing of, of, of government. Uh, so there's quite a lot that, that is going to go on there and will happen um, almost kind of automatically in response to, 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 to uh, changes in the virus and the way it hits the economy. Um, you know, I mean, so so the global environment is more helpful to us. The domestic environment is more helpful to us. The recovery um, takes, a, it, it helps. So this kind of V-shaped recovery that we're seeing is takes away the kind of feeling that of crisis in the government tax revenues. And we've seen tax revenues starting to bounce back quite well. Um, so I, you know, I think there's a lot more confidence out there um, about the ability of the economy to deal with these things. And that implies, importantly, that any further adjustments we need to make, either on monetary and fiscal policy, can be kind of marginal. Now, you know, so we can fiddle on the edges with things to kind of just keep things moving more strongly into that recovery. I, you know, I think the big weakness in, in South Africa and every and other economy's country's response to this thing is how do you you know, how do you provide income to people? And so there may be adjustments from time to time, uh, particularly through fiscal policy, uh, to, you know, needing more money to continue to bolster social wages and ensuring income support to households that uh, have lost jobs until such time as that recovery that we get starts to create jobs again. So we've got a recovery. We don't know how many jobs are being recreated or being built or, or, or brought back into the economy as part of that. Um, obviously, the more that are created going forward, the better and the less fiscal support and monetary policy support you need for the economy. So we'll see. Uh, on the corporate side, 
um, you know, our view, and we talk about this a lot in the MPR, has tended to be that, you know, we can help with short-term rates. They help with cash flow for in businesses that have borrowing. It may induce some corporates to borrow more, uh, but you really want them to borrow for long-term big investments. And that's, that just isn't uh, very uh, responsive to short-term interest rates. So you need to see greater certainty being built by fiscal policy in particular about long-term tax rates, long-term use of money, uh, long-term growth rates of the economy. Uh, a lot of energy issues are wrapped up in there. Uh, and as that happens, you'll then appetite for longer term investment uh, will start to pick up and, and our interest rates will help that. Uh, but we won't, we can't offer long term interest rates, you know, on our own. We don't do that. That's not the part of the yield curve that uh, that monetary policy is effective on. So, yeah. you know, there's, I think things are moving the right kind of direction to get that happening. Uh, but it is a gradual process. Yeah, and I think we are very responsive and have been adapting well. And this lockdown has been a great opportunity which highlights the importance of monetary policy and fiscal policy working together in order to provide stability as well as mitigate uncertainty. And despite the lags associated with monetary policy, we actually have a lot of flexibility. Policy is adaptive and, and yes. we're watching very carefully what's happening out there and the way in which the economy is responding. Yeah. Um, so generally speaking, the, the response has been very positive, but we'll have to see. And, and you know, as long as um, global credit conditions are conducive, as long as in our inflation rate and other risks to macroeconomic stability are under control here, then it creates policy space for us to continue to, to respond to the economy as, it's, as, it, as it needs us to respond. Very true. And one last question for you, Chris. Do you have any advice for South Africans going forward or is there anything else you would like to say to our listeners? No. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up the hard work. Keep up the hard work, yes. <laughs> thank you, Chris. It has really been a pleasure. <laughs> and um, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate having the opportunity to speak to you again. Um, it's always a pleasure. And if anyone is interested in how to forecast inflation using the QPM model, remember to look at URSA's South African Modeling Network, which we have launched, um, we launched it last week. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, for more updates on our podcast series, please see our website and social media platforms. Thank you. Have a good one. Till next time.